0: If you missed the introduction, my name is Mike. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church Halifax. Really glad to see all of you here in worship this morning. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you now to turn to the minor, the very short two-chapter prophet Haggai in the Old Testament. If you have a worship guide, it's on the back middle portion, which you're welcome to turn there as well, if that would be helpful. Um, Let me give you a little bit of a, a reminder of what's going on in the book of Haggai, what it's all about. The book of Haggai is about a time when God's people lost their vision for the kingdom of God and how by God's grace they regained it. In the book of Haggai, just these two chapters from the Old Testament from about 520 B.C., uh, this is exactly what happens. We find the people of God, the remnant of Israel, returning from years and years of exile in the nation of Babylon. And when they return to the land, God is no longer central in their affections. Uh, No longer uh, does the remnant people uh, desire the power and presence of God in their lives. And this is typified by the the state, the condition of the temple of God in the middle of Jerusalem. It's in shambles. It's been destroyed and the people of God are not seemingly eager to rebuild it. The temple of God, which which is representative of the very presence of God in their midst, the sun of the solar system of their lives, the gravity, uh, the source of power for his people, it's in disrepair. It's forgotten, it's put to the margins of their life. But God in his kindness wouldn't let his people wander for long. And so he sent his prophet Haggai to speak to them four distinct messages. Over the last four weeks we've been going through each one of these prophetic calls to repent, to return to God, to make God again central to their lives and so to receive his blessings. This morning we're going to be looking at the fourth and final prophecy from the book of Haggai. Let me turn your attention now to Haggai chapter 2. Verses 20 and 20, 22, 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are a fickle, forgetful people. We're easily distracted, easily entertained. We're undisciplined and unfocused and often unconcerned that this is true of us. So in this time, now as we listen to your word, as we consider it, speak to us, your people, through your prophet Haggai as you did so long ago. Help us here gather to hear your words, to believe them, to be changed by them. Help us, Father, to hold on to these words for dear life, because it is in you and it's in your true word jesus christ alone that life can be found we pray these things in christ's name and amen in the chronicles of narnia there are two very different reactions people have to the whispered rumor aslan is on the move in the first story of the chronicles the lion the witch in the wardrobe aslan the great lion the son of the emperor over the sea He's finally returning to the land of Narnia. He's coming back to this land to undo the evil work of the White Witch. Now for the weak of Narnia, those who have been oppressed by the White Witch for so long, the news of Aslan's coming kingdom is good news. When they hear the words, Aslan is on the move, this is something to celebrate. But for the witch, for those who have joined forces with her, this is not good news. Aslan's coming is a horror. It's something to resist, something to fight against, maybe something that they want to ignore for as long as they possibly can because the ramifications of it are actually quite terrifying. We get a quick glimpse of the different reactions to this news uh, from the four main characters of the story, the four Pevensey's children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Uh, they're, they're the ones who hear this news first from Mr. Beaver. Edmund, who in this point of the story is actually on the witch's side, he reacts one way to this news, and the other three children, they react another way. Listen to it. This is what C.S. Lewis, the author, writes. And now a very curious thing happened. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside themselves. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. In our text this morning, Haggai tells the beat up, weak, remnant people of Israel that God is on the move. God is on the move. How will they react to this news? will they react with celebration with trust with hope or will they react with fear with indifference with unbelief the main idea in this fourth prophecy that we've just read from verses 20 through 23 is this the weak can celebrate because nothing can stop god's coming kingdom through his chosen servant again this is this is the main idea that haggai is communicating here the weak so those who are oppressed bowed low They're sick and tired of this world. They're beaten up by their own sin and by the sin of others. They can celebrate. They can celebrate right now in whatever circumstance they find themselves in. Because of this, nothing can stop God's coming kingdom through his chosen servant. Again, God is on the move, Haggai says. His coming kingdom will destroy all evil. It'll put an end to all suffering, put an end to pride and selfishness for good. And this message, this news, this is good news for the weak, for those who are broken. It's good news for all who have been oppressed. We've been building a historical case as we've been walking through the book of Haggai over the last couple of weeks that the people of Haggai's day in the 5th century BC were about as weak as you could get. They had no military at this time, no real economic power, prosperity, no social influence, and as we've seen, they were very weak spiritually. They are really just beginning to take first steps of obedience and trust to God. So really, what reason do they have to celebrate? Right? In our experience, when we're at our weakest, when we feel sick, or perhaps when we're economically, socially, relationally, spiritually impoverished, this isn't the time where we celebrate. This is the time where we complain, where we mope, where we feel really low about ourselves and our circumstances. So why is this message of Haggai, why is it meant to elicit celebration and gladness from a very weak people? There's four reasons that Haggai gives to, to explain why this is the case. And the first reason he gives, the first reason why this people can celebrate is an important one. It's this, that God is active. God is active. They can celebrate because the God that they worship is an active God. The God of the Bible isn't the God of Deism. Right? He's, he's not some primordial uh, intelligence or power, the unmoved mover who started things rolling long ago in the ancient past, but now he just kind of sits on the sidelines of human history watching how things will unfold however they will. No, the God of the Bible, the true God, as he's revealed himself to us, is active. He's interested in our lives. He's engaged in human history, in this world. Listen how active God promises to be for his people in this section god is really the acting subject throughout this whole prophecy he's the one who's doing the stuff look at verse 21 god says i am about to shake the heavens and the earth verse 22 i am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms in verse 23, there's three ways that God says that he'll be active towards Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, who will, uh, will address him soon. He says, on that day, I will take you. I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. So the first reason that God's people can celebrate confidently in whatever situation they find themselves in, whether they're weak or, or otherwise, no matter how they feel about themselves, how depressing their circumstances might be, they can celebrate because of this. God is active. He is with them and he is for them. He is acting in history for their good. So listen, friends, if you are his, if you trust in him, if you are his people, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whatever trouble you're in this morning, listen, God is active. He's acting for your good. A second reason the week can celebrate is this, it's knowing that all other kingdoms will fall. Only God's kingdom will stand. All others will fall. Now, now for the Israelites in the 5th century BC, it was probably impossible for them to, to imagine the mighty Persian Empire would fall. This was the, the, the big nation on the block, the, the nation that had sent them back to Israel with somewhat of a leash. The Persian Empire in the days of Haggai, we have to admit, it was no joke. Uh, some historians put the Persian Empire's warriors, like their army, at two and a half million warriors strong. Now, by comparison, I don't mean to depress you, but Canada's active military personnel is less than 100,000, all right? Next to two and a half million. America, our great protectors to the south, their, their army is much larger, but it's only 1.3 million, or theirs about, China has the largest active modern military, and they're somewhere just over 2 million. They still have less than the Persians did 2,500 years ago. It's staggering. The Persian Empire also was not simply all brawn, but it had brain. They were incredibly innovative. They wrote the new playbook on warfare. They invented new bow technology so that their archers were not just more numerous than their enemies, but more effective, more efficient in battle. Persians had the largest, strongest, most strategically used mounted cavalry, and they had perfected the chariot, which is like the, uh, the Abrams tank of the ancient world. It was a technology that was so cutting edge, you know, it could overwhelm, slice through any defense mounted against it. And Persia wasn't showing any signs of weakness in the 5th century. It wasn't like Haggai was pointing out some sickness in, 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 uh, in, in Persia. In fact, it was only growing stronger. guys! speaking in the 5th century, but by the 4th century BC, the Persian Empire was just growing, swelling, expanding, consuming, assimilating more peoples and more nations. Um, by the 4th century, this empire ruled somewhere over 50 million people, which at that time was nearly half of all the world's population. This was a behemoth, an unbelievable juggernaut of power and wealth and influence. The people of God, by contrast have no real military, no financial power. They're in a spiritual mess. It would have been reasonable for them to feel afraid, to be intimidated, to be distressed in these circumstances, but God tells them not to be. Why? Because God says all kingdoms other than his kingdom will fall. Where is the Persian Empire today? What has come of, of the rule Uh, of, of of what came after, of Alexander the Great? What about the Roman Empire? Where is Genghis Khan, who was so feared in his time? What about Napoleon or Hitler or any other number of kingdoms and tyrants that seemed unstoppable? The kingdoms of the world are incredibly impressive to the naked eye. They're rich, powerful, deadly. They can do a lot of damage, and in fact they have. But God's people are to look at the politics and power of their days through the eye of faith. To believe God's word more than what their eyes can see at that moment. God says this, those kingdoms won't last. They can't last. They're creatures, not the creator. Earthly kings and earthly kingdoms may act like God. They may exercise authority over you, and you might feel their oppression in ways that seem God-like. But listen to what God says in verse 22. I'm going to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy their strength. I'm going to overthrow the chariots and riders. God is saying no nation, no force around you, which tries to oppose God, will stand. Listen, you may have some what seem to be to you very powerful forces oppressing you right now. This could be like a person in your life. It could be a horrible boss. It could be a very forceful coworker. It could be um, You know, a member of your family who who continually brings up grief to you. It could be a government. Last week we prayed for the persecuted church in our world right now. Right now, in this moment, we have brothers and sisters in the faith who are suffering under the thumb of evil and powerful rulers. But the call from Haggai is for us to celebrate, to have joy even, because every rival power to God's kingdom will fall. They're powerless to stop God's purposes of life and blessing and hope to his people as they look to him with trust that he will deliver them in due time. See, listen, the weak can celebrate because nothing, no one, no kingdom, no power can stop God's coming kingdom through his chosen servant. And we can celebrate this reality confidently right now. When you come to church, you can actually sing with joy. When you wake up in the morning, you can worship in any difficult circumstance you find yourself in because first, you can believe that God is active. Second, that all other kingdoms, all rival powers will fall. And third, because of this, sin is self-destructive. Sin is self-destructive. There's a theme running through all of Scripture that's reflected in the middle of verse 22. Read it with me where Haggai says, God's message, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Those who oppose God's kingdom ultimately destroy themselves, Haggai says. This is a thread that runs throughout all the scriptures. It's seen in stories like Gideon in Judges chapter 7 or Saul's battle with the Philistines in 1 Samuel 14. This is where God's weak, tiny, uh, people they face a larger more powerful army and somehow they win how the larger army just self-destructs their horses and riders go down everyone by the sword of his brother they turn on each other Haggai tells the remnant people of God that those who resist God are set to self-destruct sin and rebellion against God is a type of spiritual suicide as one commentator writes ultimately all sin is self-destructive since it alienates one from god breeds selfishness and self-reliance and leads to physical and spiritual death or as the proverbs put it pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall sometimes people who who don't come to church that often or you know they haven't been for a long time they imagine maybe when they see you going to church in the morning in the morning on sundays they imagine that you're going to a place where you're going to hear a talk about self-improvement They mistakenly think that the pastor job, my job, is to give you a weekly self-help pep talk. You you can do it. (laughs) As a pastor, let me now give you the worst self-help advice ever. My hope for you this morning and every morning that we gather together is that through the message that I bring to you from the scriptures, you will lose all confidence in yourself. Every scrap of it. I hope you know and I'm here to tell you that you do not have the strength or ability to find within yourself the power to manage anything in your life. should write a book about it. But I have good news to tell you. We can't be rescued by self, but we can be rescued by Christ. The Christian life is not salvation by self-help, but salvation by Christ's work in his person. Now, many people are resistant to this. Maybe you felt a little bit like, ugh. I'm not that weak, thanks. (laughs) They don't like what this says about them, that all their best efforts at building a life of their own choosing is self-destructive. But this is what God says. If you're trying today to build a life on anything other than God, then the finished work of Jesus Christ, whether you're trying to build it on your career, or on sexual pleasure, on your smarts and your ability and your know-how and your retirement savings... On anything you treasure, the foundation of this self-made kingdom is rigged with timers set to self-destruct. Any foundation, listen, any foundation that you base your life on, self-reliance, self-care, self-gratification, self-confidence, self-promotion, listen, such a life is self-destructive in the end. Imagine for a minute a doctor who receives a patient who's just come from a horrible car wreck. This person, we find out, was driving drunk. They've harmed other people on the way to the hospital, and and, and now they've destroyed themselves. This patient's on death's doors. She's broken. She's shattered. She's immobile. How pitiful, how pitiful would it be in that moment for that patient to try to roll off the hospital bed, disconnect the IVs from her arms, and mumble through swollen lips, I got it from here. Let me do this on my own. This is the self-destructive silliness of sin. Imagining that we can do on our own for ourselves what only God is able to do. We don't recognize how horrible our case is because of sin. We need the great physician. He is our only hope. The Christian life is not one of self-confidence. It's a life of profound Christ-confidence. The Christian hope is that God saves sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we look to him for that hope that when we are weak, Christ has died and come for us, that he didn't come for the strong, but for the weak. He didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. There's a fourth and final reason Haggai gives to help the people in his day to celebrate with confidence the news of God's coming kingdom, and it's this, because God has chosen his servant. They can celebrate right now, because God has chosen his servant, and that's meant to bring them hope. I was told before moving here to Nova Scotia that I would probably be asked at some point, who's your father? In the Maritimes, if you're not from this area, uh, unlike other places in Canada, it doesn't matter how competent you are at your job, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, not that I'm claiming any of these things for myself, because what matters most is where you're from and who you're related to, captured in that question. Who's your father the target of this fourth prophecy in Haggai is Zerubbabel Uh, it was a message that was directed to him from God it was for the entire nation to hear and listen on because what God was saying to Zerubbabel had meaning and import for everybody else but this is what verse 21 says speak to Zerubbabel in verse 23 look at it we learn who his father is he is Zerubbabel my servant the son of Shealtiel now, Shealtiel isn't a common East Coast name. It's not McDonald's or Campbell or LeBlanc, but it's a name that everybody in Haggai's day would be familiar with. They would know what was going on. They would know what this means about Zerubbabel, who he is and where he's come from, because Shealtiel was the descendant of King David, the great king of Israel. And why this was important was that all of the nation knew that King David had received from God a very significant promise. You can find it in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was the promise that from David, from his line, the Messiah would come. The great king of all kings. This is the hope of all the Old Testament scriptures. It was pointing to this hope that from King David's line, the Christ would come, which means Messiah, anointed one. This king would finally come to rescue God's people. He would destroy the works of the devil. He would restore, renew, and refresh his people. The hope of Israel, which was a nation that was prone to wander and leave the God who loved them, was that one day a king would come who would, who would restore them to their former glory. They had had some very, very bad kings in their history, but this king who would come one day, he would be unlike any other king. And here Haggai connects Zerubbabel through his father, Shealtiel. To this great messianic promise Zerubbabel who's standing in their midst in the fifth century BC is in the line of King David and God has chosen Zerubbabel to be his servant now it's very clear from this text that Zerubbabel is not that Messiah he's not that king but one of his descendants will be and so Zerubbabel here will be like a signet ring that's what verse 23 says Signet rings were rings worn by the king's representatives, uh, bearing the king's seal. Uh, so, uh, if 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 the king's representative wrote a letter on behalf of the king, issued an order in his name, they would use the king's signet ring and impress it like a stamp, or, or you know maybe press into a wax seal to authenticate what the king had commanded. It'd be as if the king himself was there, himself writing the letter, himself issuing the order, himself making the promise. (coughs) Excuse me. And God says to Zerubbabel, he says to the people of Israel, you, son of Shealtiel, you are my chosen servant. You are like a signet ring in the midst of Israel. Zerubbabel would be that mark of authentication for God's people to guarantee the promises that God had made so long ago. If the people of God wondered, they look at their circumstances, they look at their surroundings and they're wondering, is the Messiah ever going to come? has God forgotten his promises can God be trusted Haggai is saying look to Zerubbabel look to this signet ring in your midst trust God's word they were to look at Zerubbabel as God's own guarantee to them I haven't forgotten my promises I will send you the king the weak can celebrate in the middle of their suffering, in the middle of oppression in the face of other governments and powers, because nothing can stop God's coming kingdom through his chosen servant. This question, who's your father, is important to the biblical writers of the New Testament as well. So so listen to how the Gospel of Matthew begins. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, I'll read it for us. But it's Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy. He moves down a list, naming names, starting with fathers, going to their sons, starting from the great patriarch Abraham, moving down the generations to the great King David, and from King David all the way down to the Babylonian exile, which is just about the time that Haggai picks up. Listen to this genealogy. Uh, again, not a typical Sunday reading or maybe in your own devotional reading, but listen to how important it is, taken from Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 Through 16. And after the deportation, the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathen. And Mathen, the father of Jacob. In Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, that is, Messiah, Anointed One, the King of Kings. Haggai's people had to look forward to the king who would come through Zerubbabel, the king who would rescue them, who would put to rights all that had been made wrong. But Christians, we celebrate that God's chosen servant, the one whom Zerubbabel only pointed to, has already come, and his name is Jesus. Christians worship. We gather today, every Lord's Day, every Sunday, because God's chosen servant has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's conclude with this. The news Aslan is on the move brought two very different reactions from people, from the creatures of Narnia. For the weak and oppressed, This was news of incredible joy. It was freedom and life that this reality was just around the corner. But again, for the white witch, for those who were on her side, this was a message of terror. It was something to be feared, something to be resisted, maybe something to be ignored so it wouldn't have to be faced. Haggai's prophecy, and indeed the whole message of the whole scriptures, it can bring about two very different reactions to we who are gathered here this morning, to anyone who will hear it. So the question for you is how do you react to this news? That nothing can stop God's coming kingdom through his chosen servant, Jesus Christ. Do you hear it with some manner of fear? With some indifference? This hardly matters to me. With a type of hatred? With unbelief? (coughs) Friends, if this is the case for you, If you hear this news about Jesus Christ, what he has done, and you do not react with joy and with celebration, this is an opportunity to repent, to seek God's mercy, because the king is coming. All false kingdoms will fall. All sin will self-destruct. This is the moment to receive this Jesus who's come for us. Turn to God for mercy. Put aside selfishness and self-interest. Turn away from that and turn to Christ, the savior of sinners like you and I. But if you hear this news, this, and you hear as good news, that Christ is come, Christ is I, Christ is risen, and it fills you with courage, or brings about a delicious smell or a strain of beautiful music to your ears, that it's better to you than the news that the summer holidays are just beginning, then celebrate. Friends, whatever circumstance you find yourselves in right now, whatever trouble you're facing, celebrate. Celebrate, because nothing can stop God's kingdom from coming through his chosen servant jesus christ our lord let's pray encourage you to turn in your worship guide to the lord's prayer as we'll finish we'll finish with that our father we thank you for the blessings that you've given to your people in jesus christ that all of the treasures of life and godliness are hidden in him and so lord would you direct our attentions from our own self-made kingdoms to the coming kingdom would that be our hope Lord, would we live according to the values of that kingdom even now? Would we speed that day, putting aside selfishness and self-interest, pride, and anything that stands in opposition to you? God, help us. Fill us with your Spirit. Forgive our many sins and restore and renew us in the likeness of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we, we, we are, are, are so thankful, God, that this news has been shared openly, freely in this city of Halifax, which you love, that people come to worship and they hear this message. God, we pray that your spirit would so move in their hearts that they would react not with fear and terror, disbelief or anger, but with joy, with celebration, Lord. Change our hearts, change the heart of this city. Help us to receive this news for the very good news that it is. We pray these things using the words of your son who taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name.